Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Another big week on Wall Street, Boeing considers buying Spirit Aerosystems and is fined by the State Department for violating U.S. export controls. Leonardo and NTU report earnings, and one of our own tells us what he thinks the U.S. Air Force's next-generation air dominance fighter looks like. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Gentlemen, welcome back. It wouldn't be a weekend unless we were all together. Uh, Ron, start us off. It's another big uh, week on the market. Tell us how the group performed and, and what were the, the big drivers. Because right now, right, we have a continuing resolution. Uh, government stays open. The sense that we're going to get this resolved. Hopefully, it doesn't go to a full-year CR, although we're teetering on the verge of that. Um, you know, that that's sort of the macro factor here here in Washington. But what were some of the other drivers? Yeah, I mean, for the week, if you look at the S&P, it was up about a percent. Uh, so the market's been, um, you know, quite buoyant uh, uh, lately. Uh, the 10-year yield uh, this week you know, trickled down a little bit, still about 4%, 4.2. We've been in that 4.2 to 4.3% range for the 10-year yield for quite some time. Uh, you know, Brent crude and and WTI were in the, in the 80 to $85 range. We've been there for a while. The BIX index, which is the measurement of kind of fear and loathing in the market, has been low at, at, at you know 13. Um, and then broadly, if you look at uh, how our group traded, um, I will open up with just a question for you all. You know, who who was the best performing stock of high coverage universe? I'll answer that in a moment. Um, you look at Boeing, it was down uh, about half a percent uh, underperforming the market. Same with General Dynamics. Most of the, the large cap defense names were down a percent to a percent and a half. I don't have to go through the list, but I think a lot of that had to do with you know the budget dynamics and the headlines and so on and so forth. But being down a percent to a percent and a half, you're underperforming the market, you know, pretty meaningfully, right? If the market was up a percent. Uh, and then you know, the, the names that did, did best this week were um, you know, the, the company specific names, with maybe one exception. So Spirit Aerosystems, you know, closed the week up about 13%. Most of that gained uh, on Friday when um, kind of all the fireworks happened about um, Spirit having conversations with multiple suitors. Um, uh, BWX Technologies was up almost 14%. They reported earnings this week, strong earnings, and they had an investor day that you know, kind of painted a, you know, a bright outlook. Uh, and then finally, the real winner for the week, um, with no obvious news, was Embraer. Embraer was up 15%. Uh, you know, the um, like I mentioned, the S and P was up a percent, and if you want to compare it to the the Bovespa index in Brazil, it was down twenty basis points. So, you know, Embraer really was the the heavy lifter of the week. Um, so we'll see where it all goes. Our earnings season's you know quickly moving in the rearview mirror, uh, and all the companies will be now you know out and about talking at various conferences and so on and so forth. So we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, it is uh, going to be interesting indeed, and we're going to get into uh, spirit and uh, everything, the uh, possible Boeing, uh, or I, we should really say, you know, spirit returning uh, to uh, Boeing uh, in, a, in a moment. Sash, walk us through uh, European uh, stocks and how they performed. Obviously, MTU and Leonardo uh, both uh, reported in the week. We can get into that uh, as well as if you like here or, or later in the program, but walk us through how the group performed overall. Yeah, sure. I mean, the... Um... European Aerospace and Defence Act had a pretty good week. Um, for once, there was very little difference in the aggregate performances of the civil stocks and the defence stocks. 
Civil were up 2.1%, the defence average up about 2.4%. And that compares with, um, and if you look at the the major European indices, the uh, UK uh, FTSE 100 was actually off very slightly. The French CAC 40 up 2.5% and the DAX up 1.8%. But you know, generally, the aerospace and defence stocks outperformed, which was uh, which was a very, very good um, result. Actually, when you drill down into it, there were many fewer um, really strong, really strong performers, but they were they really did drag everybody else up. And I mean, I'd highlight, um, you know, in particular, Hensolt, the German defense electronics company, was up just under 10 percent. And the reason for that uh, primarily was the uh, comments by uh, Roberto Cingolani, the CEO of Leonardo, that he on behalf of Leonardo, would like to start talking about some sort of joint venture again. Remember, Leonardo bought 25% of uh, Hensolt when Hensolt was being privatized, but then right. um, didn't carry through with that uh, when Hensolt had a, uh, a, a an equity issue uh, at the, at the um, end of last year, beginning of this year. But um, Chingalani seems to have, he really does seem to want to go out and do the consolidation stuff, um, whether for good or bad. And, uh, you know, the fact that he name checked Hensold particularly just sent the shares up very, very strongly indeed. But otherwise, the other, you know, the other interesting thing, um, <clears throat> aero engines, uh, we're starting to, or oh, we've seen some time, but a real gapping out in aero engines between Rolls-Royce and uh, the two narrow body plays, Safran and, um, uh, and MTU. And this should be fairly obvious. Um, Rolls-Royce is a wide-bodied engine company. Wide bodies were hardest hit by the pandemic. They were the latest to recover, really still only picking up in uh, in uh, Asia overall and particularly in China. Uh, and Rolls-Royce's install base is huge in China because they, they delivered hundreds of uh, Trent 700-powered A330s there. Um, but, you know, Rolls-Royce was up 6% this week. Uh, Safran and MTU were... Uh, were effectively flat. But put that in perspective, since the uh, 2023, Rolls was uh, up 222%. Uh, and um, you know, Safran was up 36%, MTU uh, off 3%. So you know, it, it really is, in terms of aero engine aftermarket, it's the wide body play that is uh, succeeding incredibly strongly at the moment. And the narrow body companies are fairly much, they're, they're normalizing. You know, we're getting back to trend growth, uh, which is fine, but it's not terribly exciting. Uh, whereas wide bodies, there's still a huge catch up to come. And that was that was a big feature of stock performance this week. Um, Richard, let me uh, bring you in on that, on a wide narrow body uh, performance since uh, Sash raised it. Your, your sense on sort of the engine market as a reflection of uh, the tubes, uh, as it were. Yeah, there's a couple of issues at play in addition to the important ones uh, raised by Sash. You know, I think one is that the next generation single aisle is going to happen within the next few years, certainly launched by the end of the decade, driven by persistently high fuel prices, uh, by the fact that the single aisle market is, you know, two thirds of the business. So the volumes are there to support something completely new. And by the fact that there is new technology. And then perhaps most of all, I think the pipe dreams of the past few years are going away. Thank God. You know, there were a lot of people who say, well, you know, uh, 
if we launch something conventional, it's going to be overtaken by hydrogen or magic moon dust or pop rocks or something sometime (laughs) in the 2030s. You know, so I I think that magical thinking has sort of been lifted like a very stupid cloud. And people are saying, yeah, no, we've got at least another generation of conventional Braden cycle turbines and maybe not a conventional, completely conventional airframe. Everything's on the table. But in terms of, you know, what's driving this next generation single oil, it's it's something relatively conventional. Might be a prop fan, but it's still a turbine. Uh, So that's driving, I think, uh, a change there. Uh, Now, the twin oil market is, is really fascinating because it is coming back in terms of orders a little bit, but it's still not enough to persuade me that it is making a massive comeback to the tune of being 50% of the market again. And as we've discussed before, that's because a lot of people are chasing the same damn traffic, whether you're a Gulf super connector, the Indians, the Saudis, the Turks or the Moroccans or anybody else, you're ordering wide bodies to go after the same pool of traffic. Having said that, the wild card here, so a lot of these folks are funded by sovereign wealth funds and other market distorting finance devices. In other words, they just might order a bunch of jets. We might have massive overcapacity and carnage in international long haul markets, but those planes might actually be built. Let's uh, shift uh, gears uh, to um, speculation that Boeing uh, is going to acquire uh, Spirit uh, or maybe reacquire Spirit. I know that they're trying to make this somehow a competition, but Spirit basically doesn't exist in any meaningful form um, without Boeing, really. I mean, it's its number one aerostructures company. This is why many people thought it was an absurd idea to spin it off. But hey, at the time, everybody was just interested in propping up shareholder, so-called shareholder value, even if it uh, actually eroded real value. Uh, Ron, start us off on the discussion. What do these conversations mean? Is there any other place that spirit ends up? And how important is Pat Shanahan to this? And you know, is it fanciful to assume that Pat Shanahan is going to end up leading Boeing and succeeding uh, Dave Calhoun? Or is it actually likely going to be the other way around that Pat Shanahan makes more money in a shorter amount of time than any other human in history? Um, well, maybe just to start with a little of history spirit, right? So, you know, why why was it separated from Boeing in the first place, right? And I think this is important to put in context. Two, two reasons at the time, um, if, you know, we all remember uh, big companies, big defense companies, you know, fancied themselves as, remember, the concept of a system integrator. We don't get our hands dirty fabricating things, we integrate things. So part of it was, you know, we're going to get rid of this big fabrication plant because we're an integrator, one. And then two, you know, the the other management um, um, thing that was in, in vogue at uh, Boeing at the time was uh, return on net assets, RONA. And so if you can't really increase your, your R, um, you know, decrease your net assets. So by getting rid of this, you increase your RONA and kind of everybody wins. You know, that that's what happened. And then the third piece, super important to remember, was the IAM in Wichita was the same IAM in Seattle. I mean, they're all covered by the same rules, same negotiating things. So by breaking it off, you broke the union, right? And they did that successfully. You know, when they when they did it, you know, another big uh, piece of this was, was separating, you know, breaking up the IAM into two pieces, a Wichita um, um, version and a, a Puget Sound version where you had different work rules and pay rates and so so on and so forth. Now, the, the rub is it's a factory. It's always been a factory. It's not a business. It never was a business. It's a fabrication facility. 
and it was a fabrication facility that they, they that was forced into being a business and it, it just didn't work very well right i mean it, it, it had periods where it did okay uh, but it was extremely volatile uh, went through several different management teams tried to do all kinds of different things to diversify itself that really didn't work at all um i think airbus figured out quickly that hey you know what you know, having this stuff internal is probably pretty smart i mean uncertain slash can speak to that um and you know so here we are kind of full circle you know, you know boeing you know, in discussions with bringing at least part of this back in you know that that has to when you think about the venn diagram that's overlaying with the faa saying boeing hey you got 90 days to come with the plan to you know figure out how you're going to you know do things better um this is probably part of it um in terms of quality control and compliance and so on and so forth um so so you know so here we are now you know it'll be interesting to see how this all all plays out i mean there's a, a lot of variables the the Boeing piece is probably the easiest piece. That's all the stuff in Wichita. You know, Boeing gets back um, you know, the, the stuff that supports them on both commercial uh, and some defense. And then Boeing also gets exposure to defense programs they're not currently on. Um, Spirit is um, supporting B-21, so that would put Boeing on B-21. Um, Spirit is supporting Sikorsky, Lockheed on CH, CH-53K. Um, so Boeing would have a position there. So there's some strategic defense stuff too in the background that kind of gets overlooked on this. And V280, right? They're doing uh, this yeah, yeah, V280 too, right? So it, it gives them some exposure on um, some programs that you know arguably would be good, right? I mean, you can't you can't can't argue about that. Now, where this gets tricky, um, the only reason Spirit kind of still exists is because Boeing has given them, um, you know, you know, how can I say, you know, lifelines many, many, many times. Uh, including just a couple quarters ago, um, a lot of the IP at Spirit is owned by Boeing. A lot of the tooling at Spirit is owned by Boeing. So if you're, you know, the bankers on on both sides of this deal, I mean, there's going to be you know sell side bankers and buy side bankers. Um, there's going to be a funky kabuki dance going on here. Um, in some way, it might even be you know, a, a bit of a Mexican standoff, right? Where you you you've got two guns on the table and a bottle of tequila. Are you going to shoot each other? Or are you just going to split the bottle of tequila? In that. Um, Boeing owns a lot of this stuff already, right? So I would imagine there's going to be a pretty interesting negotiation on price and so on and so forth. So, and then this doesn't even address the whole Airbus piece, which is complicated. I'll leave that to, to Sash, but um, I can't imagine the European regulators would be like, yeah, okay, Boeing, you can buy this and then you're going to sell this stuff to Airbus or whoever at some extraordinary price. I, I can't imagine the European regulators would be like, yeah, that's cool. So there's there's that overlay as well that makes things more complicated. And then finally, one last comment. They're still dealing with the same workforce. I mean, this is this is one of those things where if there are problems at Spirit, um, one assumption, Boeing can run it better. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Two, when they open the hood of this thing, how many rats are going to run out, right? We, we, we don't know, right? I mean, so it's not like they take it over and immediately overnight, everything's magic and better. So anyway, I've gone on for a while. So let me leave it there and, and hand it on to. I, I, it, it, is, it is really the culmination of a lot of very bad thinking at, at the company. Uh, you know, we used to hear some of the same rhetoric coming from Jim McNerney. And if you went back to, you know, Mike Sears days, Boeing doesn't have to make anything. I mean, it was almost literally like, right. I mean, we're, we're just going to be the integrator and the designer of it. And then, you know, we, we will assemble thing. We're going to out Airbus Airbus on this thing. And, 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 uh, and, and let me add, I mean, it really, I mean, the, 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 the pinnacle where it went completely off the rails, if you know, we all remember the industrialization of 787 was just a complete disaster because they outsourced everything. And in the end, 
that didn't work. And 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 I guess the good news is, and we're seeing this on Triple Seven X, they brought the wing back in house. They're doing more stuff in house. So this trend that hey, you know what? Actually, we do have to get our hands dirty and build things. Um, you know, for sure is the right direction. And it's you know it, it and you know you kind of wish they figured it out sooner, but I mean it is what it is. Uh, there are deals that are that help uh, enhance value, and then there are deals that, um, for the wrong reasons, end up destroying value. Um, uh, Richard, want to bring you into this, and then Sash, uh, get your uh, sense on this. Richard, uh, go ahead. Well, uh, so much to, to discuss. You know, so many fascinating aspects. Um, you know, first of all, let's uh, let's yeah, give kudos where it's due because Boeing, at the end of the day, if they do this, not certain, but if they do this, they're de-risking their supply chains and also providing a degree of political top cover by saying, ah, this is how we are changing our system. Never mind that it's a Boeing jet. Never mind that they caused so many of the problems that have been inflicted by Spirit with dunderheaded ideas like partnering for success or, you know, just generally treating them like crap. You know, never mind all of that. The appearance to the outside world, to regulators and whoever else is going to be that they're taking concrete action. And that's good. And again, de-risking their supply chain because it's no longer going to be here's three grickles in a shoe. Go make the working capital needed to make this production ramp happen. Um, it's going to be, OK, it's our responsibility, our production ramp. And we own so much more of this plane that does a long, it goes a long way towards de-risking things. So credit where credit is due. Uh, Pat Shanahan. Oh, boy. I mean, the really exciting uh, possibility here is that somehow, um, some way, he becomes higher up in Boeing. That would be fantastic. Maybe even one day, new CEO. That is the best bit of news I have heard in a very long time. The reality, of course, is that Calhoun, like McNerney, is threatened by people. Uh, and I mean, a lot of people, and uh, as a consequence, might just make short shrift of him. Um, that is the single most menacing thought I've heard in quite some time. So, anyway, there's good news here, there's concerning news. And as Ron said, there's an awful lot needed to make it happen, what with the Airbus factories and, uh, and, and whatever else. But if it, well, this, this does. Help revisit and clean up a big mistake that was made, what, 17, 18, 19 years ago. Um, uh, Sash, uh, bring you into this, uh, your sense overall, uh, and the, you know, as, as Ron uh, mentioned and, and Richard uh, glanced off of, right? I mean, the Airbus angle uh, and what that ultimately means. And, you know, I mean, I, there are remedies to everything right ultimately but uh, just to get your broader strategic sense on on this i mean the good news is in a sense all of the things that we and many others have been saying the company actually has been doing to a degree right i mean the only other thing they could do that will make everybody overjoyed is actually announce that they're going to do a new airplane um you know the, the question becomes right i mean what you know r resources in the wake of doing a major transaction and still taking a bath on a lot of its uh big contracts unfortunately but anyway take it away I, look, just follow up on what Richard said, I would regard Pat Janahan as being the best CEO Boeing has never had. Uh, and if that could somehow be reversed and he could be the CEO that Boeing has, I think an, a huge amount of everything else would follow because he'd be the right person to launch a new airplane. So I'd, I'd really look forward to that. I think that would be incredibly good for Boeing and for this industry. Um, resources are going to be a, a problem, but I think he's got a, he'd have a far better chance of working that problem than um, uh, than the current uh, management. Um, 
so let's look, I'm, actually, I'm going to look at this at least as much from the point of view of spirit. We don't analyze spirit. We don't have coverage of it. But uh, it's clearly a systemically important subcontractor in this industry. Um, and my feeling, and this I think probably echoes Ron, is that spirit equity, its shares are worth a ton less than people think it is. Spirit is in distress. You don't go to Boeing otherwise and say, please buy us. Um, it's in distress because the deal that they did with Boeing, which was effectively a, an emergency rescue um, about a quarter and a half ago, uh, where Boeing agreed to um, change the terms of working capital and pricing and so forth, was good, but nowhere near good enough. And, if, and you know, our listeners will probably remember that at the time they said, well, we've done this deal with Boeing. We are uh, still in negotiations with Airbus to, uh, you know, get some sort of uh, relief there as well. Well, you know what? Uh, you know, four or five months on, nothing has been announced. And the reason for that, and I think we discussed this at the time, is it wasn't and isn't in Airbus's interest to make Spirit whole uh, and to make Spirit stronger, if what that does is to strengthen Boeing. I, this is really brutal. It's, it's not nice, but Airbus needs to get A220 wings and parts for the A350 out of the two plants that uh, Spirit has in the UK, one in Belfast, one at Prestwick outside Glasgow, but they certainly don't want to make Spirit stronger so that they're a better supplier to Boeing. And therefore, I think Airbus is holding off from uh, any sort of you know uh, better pricing for that reason. And I think they will make it astonishingly difficult for anything to happen, particularly to the Belfast site, which is absolutely critical for the A220 wings, they will uh, play real hardball until they get that effectively at you know zero uh, uh, you know zero cost to Airbus or to whoever Airbus nominates as their um, uh, you know their, their their key subcontractor for this. Uh, so I, I suspect that this is going to be a really unpleasant process for for Spirit. But at the end of it, two prime contractors will become more integrated than they have been in a decade and a half. Um, again, just go back in history, Airbus saw what Boeing was doing, uh, particularly on the 787. At that stage, they had a cost problem as well. So they had a sort of double panic. They had a program called Power 8, uh, which was designed to do a lot of what um, Boeing had done with Spirit and Wichita. It was very much a, we, a me too or an us too program. But actually, they never followed through. They ended up still holding these two huge uh, fuselage businesses, one in France, Stellier, and another in Germany, Premium Aerotech, and they were sort of semi-detached parts of Airbus. Well, they're now right. fully integrated parts of Airbus. Um, and if the A220 wing plant uh, came into Airbus for the first time, I, you know, I, there will be people in Airbus who say, "Why do we need yet another wing plant?" And particularly, "Why do we need yet another wing plant in the UK?" But it wouldn't be a bad outcome for them. Uh, so from all of your perspectives, is this resolvable? Do yeah. I mean, what's yeah, the... It's, it, yes, it's resolvable, but it won't be resolvable in a way that's terribly pleasant for uh, spirit shareholders because it will be messy and Boeing and uh, Airbus can and will play hardball. It'll be a, a forced breakup on their terms. And uh, Ron, right. I mean, and that would get re reflected in the pricing, right? I mean, obviously, they're trying to hold an auction on this. But that could prevent Boeing, right? So in a sense, they can't go anywhere else but Boeing. On the other hand, you could see bankers work this 
to give it to somebody else, right? I mean, there have to be other interested parties, right? GKN, you you know, go go down the list of other possible folks who are um, interested in growing, right? How does how does that work? Do you think from a street right. perspective? And Richard, want to get your sense as well. Put your deal maker banker advisory hat on. Yeah. So to be clear, I'm not a banker. I'm a I, yes, yes, a and neither neither, neither do you play yeah. one on radio. Yeah, I don't. Right. So, but I mean, just from watching these things over the years, um, there's, there's, there's a couple angles on this that everybody has to consider. Um, when, when you, you got the regulatory approval overlay, right? So you've got a European regular regulator and a U.S. regulator, presumably the U.S. regulator was, you know, Boeing doing this, if it closes, you know, if it gets to that point would say, yeah, thumbs up. Right. I mean, you, like, like I intimated, this, this is there is no way that this is not somehow related to the FAA saying to Boeing, you got ninety days to kind of get it together. This is, you know, like Richard said, part of you know, control of your supply chain and compliance and quality, so on and so forth. So presumably, you know, the you know the the U.S. would be okay with it. Then the the real question becomes, right? So what's this what's this mean for for Airbus? Right. Um, the one question I got from investors, even on the U.S. side, was why doesn't an activist investor get in there and hold hold Boeing hostage? Well, that can't happen because in the um, last package that Boeing um, uh, gave Spirit in there, there was essentially a poison pill that if anybody was going to take over Spirit, it could only be Boeing, right? So that's off the table. So then, then now it becomes down comes down to the Airbus thing. I would imagine the, if 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 Boeing were to try to hold up Airbus or whatever, I mean, the European regulators say no, no, there's no way we would approve this deal. So, uh, and those are also assets that are losing money, right? I mean, the the, the wing plant in Belfast is losing money. Um, Kinston, North Carolina, where the A350 stuff is done, the the fuselage panels, um, is losing money. Um, the good news is, and this is what makes this, in some sense, a little easier. The Airbus stuff is in completely different facilities than the Boeing stuff. There isn't stuff that's co-located in the same buildings, right? So, so literally, it's you know kind of like you take those chips, we take these chips. That's kind of how it goes. Now, could a GKN or somebody else want to look at you know, some of these assets? Yeah, maybe, right? I mean, I, I I can't speak to that. The board, I mean, and then to think about this from a spirit perspective, the board's going to have to approve this. The shareholders on some level are going to have to approve this. Um, and, and then that involves things like fairness opinions from bankers and valuations and so on and so forth. So kind of back to my, my point about the kind of the Kabuki dance, um, you'll have a valuation on, you know, on the Boeing side, whoever's representing them, it's going to say, Hey, spirit, we think you're worth whatever. Um, and it's going to be low. Uh, and then on the spirit side, you'll have bankers who say, we think we're worth this. It'll be high. And then they'll have to negotiate and figure out kind of where to meet in the middle. Boeing's job, and, and clearly they've got really good bankers, big, big company, who, you know, whoever they are. Um, and, um, you know, they're going to look and say, hey, you know what? That, actually, those are our tools and that's our IP. And this is this. And, you know, if we kind of took that away, you're not worth much. I mean, that's their job. And then the spirit guys or bankers do their job. And then the board has to ultimately approve this and then shareholders do. So there's so many moving parts. I would imagine, and this is kind of the first key point, this is going to take a while to close because you got all this stuff going on and then you, you a big piece of this is also um going you know what happens in europe which will it just makes it even more complicated i would imagine i'm just kind of you know just throw this out there if they weren't supporting airbus if this was just boeing stuff and maybe some stuff they were doing some other u.s companies they could probably close over the weekend 
Um, but because it's not, this will take much longer to kind of get sorted out. Uh, and uh, Richard, want to get your sense on this. And then unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, move on. Go ahead. Yeah, I think Ron's exactly right. There's no way this does not take time to close because of the valuation aspect, because of the legal IP aspect. And of course, the, you know, what's what? I mean, go back, you know, again, 19 years to the creation. And the idea was to create this center of excellence, you know, to diversify the portfolio beyond the mere 737. And uh, they actually succeeded. A lot of it, unfortunately, with money losing contracts, which further complicates things. But they did acquire, you know, they did, well, become the premier world's aerostructures company. Um, that's not nothing, even though, again, it was kind of a value destroyer. I, I'm, I'm a bit torn here because it, it wasn't achieved. And there was a time when it looked good. Um, it was only a year ago or so that my uh, my colleague, Kevin Michaels, wrote the, the fantastic column in Aviation Week that said, you know, at the end of the day, aerostructures is kind of a failed industry, failed market. It, it doesn't work. But for many years, all of us thought it kind of might, it kind of did. And as part of that, they collected all of this all of this work. And sorting that all out is going to be, well, undoing a multi-decade messy process. If I, if I can add one thing, Vago, and, and this is kind of ironic. Um, you know, we were there when the original deal happened, right? Um, and when Onyx Capital took over Spirit from Boeing or bought it and then, you know, brought it public. The single biggest risk at the time. So if you were a bear on spirit at its inception, the bear thesis was, hey, you know what? These guys, their major program, their big profit generator is the 737 and the 737 is going to go away. Now, it's interesting that in the end really was one of their big Achilles heels, but it wasn't because the 737 went away. It's because the 737 right. max happened and had all its issues. But um, that that one kind of risk point you know, it manifested itself in a, in a very different way. But that was the key bear thesis on on uh, Spirit at the time was the thinking, right? This is pre-Max and pre-Neo that, yeah, of course, this is it. This is the last run for this airplane and they're going to have to get themselves on another narrow body. Uh, it, 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 exactly so. Uh, and uh, just a quick word from our sponsors, the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by Bell HII. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. Um, uh, Sash, uh, we're going to have to uh, move on uh, from that. But just really quickly, the, uh, 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 b before we wrap up on Boeing, anybody want to take a bite on the $51 million uh, arms uh, export control uh, violation uh, I, in a, a period, um, I want to say it was about 10 years or five years or whatever it was that um, Chinese employees accessed uh, sensitive Boeing uh, information or downloaded. I think there were 25 instances uh, of that. Uh, how big of a deal is this $51 million fine? Richard, if you want to take a quick bite uh, of that apple. Well, you know, to state the obvious, that's just not very much money. Um, and of course, you know, to state the other obvious point, it's, I, <laughs> this is not likely to be some kind of malice. Let's transfer F-15 data to the Chinese. You know, it's it's rather it's a procedural thing. So even though uh, it's 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 difficult for companies to comport themselves in, in, in a world, as we've said before, in a world where China is both a major commercial aerospace uh, customer and completely verboten from a defense standpoint and indeed a peer adversary, you know, it, 
this this is the sort of thing that I'm afraid just happens now and again and, and needs to be needs to be stamped out in the future. But it it it, right. it there are going to be mistakes. Um, and and they should be more vigilant. And uh, it was between 2013 and 2015. Uh, and according to the complaint, the three Boeing employees in China downloaded tw- 25 uh, times between uh, 2013 and 2017 related to three different models of fighter jets and airborne warning and control system and attack helicopter and two varieties of air uh, to ground missiles. Right. So potentially pretty uh, serious. And there were a number of other unauthorized downloads in a variety of other nations uh, as well. Uh, Sash, uh, let's uh, move to you because we've got to come back to NGAD and I've got to come back to you on uh, obviously uh, what was uh, Vladimir Putin's very good week. Um, uh, and uh, right, in part, nuclear saber rattling, convincing Olaf Scholz not to send the Taurus to Ukraine, unfortunately, as the Ukrainians literally are hanging on by their fingernails at this point. Uh, walk us through MTU and Leonardo results and what they told us, right? You gave us a little bit of a flavor at the top, uh, but give, a, uh, give us a little bit of a deeper dive into those results. Yeah, OK. I mean, M- MTU, first of all, uh I, you know, it was a very, very interesting set of results. Um, the good news, um, you know, we, sh- we should have known this anyway, but is that the, the whole problem with the Pratt & Whitney geared turbofan isn't getting any worse. Um, but MCU is one of the two largest uh, subcontractors for the, or, or partners for the geared turbofan program. They took a billion dollar charge last year uh, after uh, Pratt & Whitney Raytheon um, took their very last, large charges the message coming out of mtu is we're not part of the we're not the problem but we are part of the solution um which is quite pointed when you think about it uh, but the point you know the point they're making is these engines that have to be inspected and repaired are not going to get inspected and repaired without the huge repair and overhaul capabilities that mtu has worldwide um they are a very very big uh, overhaul company, including an enormous joint venture with China Southern Airlines at, in in Zhuhai, and that's given that part of the problem for the Gearbox fan is is just uh, MRO shop capacity. They've got the capacity uh, that can help Pratt and Whitney sort this engine out. So that was a that was quite a punchy statement, uh, I thought, uh, to make. The flip side of this, of course, is it's still going to take two two and a half years. And you remember we talked last week about the fact that MTU rather unexpectedly cut their dividend, um, citing the costs, uh, the cash costs of the gear turbofan, um, plus the need to keep on investing in new plants, R&D, uh, working capital and so forth. So just as the uh, civil aero engine, the narrow body market is normalizing, we talked about that earlier on, um, they've got a lot of costs coming up, cash costs coming up, and they're just having to, they're having to manage those very, very carefully indeed. Uh, and that, you know, the, the surprise to me was that the um, the shares basically came through these numbers and the numbers themselves were good. And, you know, the guidance for 2024 is pretty punchy. Guidance for 2025 is quite punchy, but the shares came out flat. And it was basically saying, yeah, you're doing well, but uh, the shares have bounced a lot um, up from 163 euros to 220 euros just in the last five months or so. Shares have bounced. Uh, it's time for a bit of a pause there. Um, the other stock that reported this week, um, Leonardo, and I mean, Leonardo, sometimes in reporting terms, can they don't help themselves. So the fact that they uh, uh, put, the, put the numbers out barely minutes before the call didn't give anybody a great deal of time to, uh, to go uh, through everything. What were the big takeaways? The company is doing, is doing pretty well, but it isn't 
seeing, as far as we can uh, make out from the numbers, the sort of acceleration of orders and cash flow and hence revenue and profits that BA Systems is. BA Systems is just a little bit more focused on um, the Northern Europe. It's got a very big armoured vehicle business in Sweden now, which is um, doing incredibly well. But BAE has also got probably the most protected programmes in the UK, nuclear submarines. Um, Leonardo is clearly benefiting from increased demand for, for the Eurofighter Typhoon, but doesn't seem to be growing quite as uh, you know quite as fast as BAE at the moment. But you'd never guess it from the share price. It's the strongest performing uh, European defence large cap. Uh, way ahead of BAE, way ahead of, of Thales and Dasso. Um, one little interesting comment that they made, and this, this comes back to you know what, what we've been talking about with Spirit, is that Leonardo's aerostructures business has been loss-making for several years now. One of their biggest programs is the Boeing 787. And Roberto Cingolani, the CEO, um, said in, in the Q&A that they've got a 10% price increase out of Boeing on the 787 program. Um, and a couple of months ago, Saab said they'd got price increases out of Boeing as well, but they didn't actually put a number on it. But, you know, 10 percent price increase for a nice, mature program like this. That's that's really good going. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to, you know, just to see how that comes through to the Leonardo Aerostructures business in the next couple of years and whether it turns it into profit you know, sooner than perhaps people have been expecting. Ron, uh, I want to, A, if either uh, of you have anything you want to add to this, please go ahead. But otherwise, I was going to go, Ron, to your uh, tremendous report uh, on gaming out what the two, uh, right, or what what the next generation air dominance aircraft uh, will look like. Obviously, it's the U.S. Air Force's priority effort. Uh, Lockheed Martin and Boeing are pursuing it. Uh, we know that Northrop Grumman is not in the mix anymore, focusing more on FAXX, uh, the Navy's program, which has slipped a little bit. Anyway, walk us through, uh, you know, how how you envision these aircraft and what the big design trades are. You were showing single-seater aircraft. There is some speculation it's a two-seat aircraft, but more broadly, it's it's about the plan form and, and why you picked what you did as a PhD aerodynamicist uh, and a guy who knows uh, the ins and outs of aircraft integration as well. Anyway, walk us through, uh, you know, what you think this jet looks like. Yeah, so we, um, as you mentioned, Vago, thanks for that. We uh, published a report this week, an in-depth report on um, NGAD, future generation fighters in general, uh, NGAD FAXX, and um, also the collaborative combat aircraft. But a, a real focus of it was kind of our vision of what NGAD could be. And, you know, kind of, you know, to start with, you know, we, we were thinking something that probably had pretty similar DNA to F-35 and F-22. So if, if you look at our concept, you know, it, you know, it looks like it's a, you know, sort of in the same family, you know, maybe a cousin or something. Um, it, you know, it's something that's big enough to have uh, carry enough fuel to have long range. Um, something that's very, very stealthy, right? And one way you can you can achieve that with a tactical aircraft as you have a more technical tail structure and we, we put in ours a uh, a folding detail it's kind of an you know, interesting concept um and then if things like optionally piloted like you mentioned you know, our images show uh, a single pilot but we could have a, 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 a you know two pilot version that wasn't um you know kind of a key focus of what we were, were looking at an off an open software architecture so you know kind of the way i vision this thing that you know when you think about um, the various systems on the airplane, um, 
you know, almost something you know, iPhone-esque where you can start dropping some apps on it. Um, we've seen that with competitor aircraft. And it seems like that's one of the big pushes that the DOD wants. Uh, for sure, a multi-cycle engine that allows you to you know, fly really, really fast, and but also really, really far efficiently. And um, that's the only way uh, when you're thinking about operations in the Pacific or deterrence in the Pacific that you can, can kind of get, that get the, the range that you need. Um, and, you know, the next generation of, you know, surface uh, treatments for low observability. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's where we work. Um, again, you know, so I'm happy to share our, our concept with anybody that, that's interested, but um, that, that, that's what we pulled together. And, and and let me just uh, quickly and and uh, see if uh, uh, Richard or Sash want to weigh into this. But um, and and obviously the open systems architecture is key, right? And the the DoD's reference architectures are one really incredible revolution um, that is going to drive all programs ahead much faster. Um, where there are sort of set open systems and all the protocols to be able to plug stuff uh, into it and then really get rid of vendor lock, right? I mean, it's the worst nightmare, I think, for some folks, but then again, one of the best things for DOD and ultimately the number one priority they have is to field the best systems at the best quality uh, at the best uh, price uh, as, as, and the greatest flexibility uh, as possible. Uh, Ron, what's the speed range, right? I mean, when you get to uh, adaptive cycle power plants and the like, right? I mean, you can really stretch uh, range out. When you look at that folding tail, I think it's brilliant. You have directional stability, for example, when you're landing or coming back to an aircraft carrier. Uh, but then again, you know, you, you, you drop the tail down and you know, and even naval aviation, by the way, is overcoming its opposition to tailless aircraft, as we can see from the Stingray. Uh, anyway, walk us through, you know, what kind of range, what kind of speed, right? And how does that compare with things uh, that we have now in the inventory? Yeah, so from, from you know, from a range perspective, we're thinking that something that has at least twice the range of, a, of an F-35 today, because um, that, you know, gives you, um, you know, kind of the, the what do you want to call it? The the padding that you need uh, in the Pacific to get away from anything that could hit hit a carrier, um, or you know, kind of just gives you the 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 broad range that you need operating in that theater, right? Um, it should surprise nobody that F thirty five is doing so well in NATO circles because it was designed for that mission. Right. So this this is an airplane that's being designed for a different mission, not for you know fighting the Soviets in Europe, but actually deterring uh, in in the Pacific. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that, 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 that's you know, one key point and that drives some, some size. And that's why you have to have that multi-cycle engine, because it's the only way you can get the range on the, on the airplane. And, and if you, if you consider, if you were to do a multi-cycle engine on a, uh, on an F-35, you can get, you know, you know, ballpark, probably maybe 30% more range on a next generation airplane that's designed to, you know, for specifically around that engine and it has the, you know, the, the fuel capacity and whatever else. You, you, you could easily double the range, I think. That's my sense. All right. So something that's you know, two x the range of an F thirty five, and uh, and what else? What am I what am I forgetting here? Speed, Bono? speed, speed. Yeah, speed. So yeah, you, so you can super cruise um, if you need to. Uh, you can super cruise, um, you know, with your tail down, um, uh, very efficiently and very stealthy. Um, but because of the way the tail structure is, if you need to fly slow or if you need to do, you know, kind of, you know, dogfighting or whatever you want to call it, if that ever comes up, or you want to do a slow approach onto a carrier or something else, um, you'll have the flexibility to do that because you'll have the, the you know, the, the, the control surface flexibility in the back that you can, you can actually do that. 
Richard? Yeah, sure. You know, first of all, congratulations, Ron, to you and your team for well doing a fantastic report. It told me more than I I've learned thus far about the next generation of American combat aircraft. Very well done. And uh, indeed, a, a well, as you did with the Ronjet many years ago, uh, hopefully a stake in the ground for people to follow uh, if they haven't already come up with a firm set in stone design. Um, the one thing I, you know, really, that really hit me is just that, boy, there's really no hope for commonality in getting FAXX. They just, no, 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 there's no, the, the good old days of joined us, which never existed to be fair, but even the dreams of joined us, no. And there's so much less that we know about FAXX. Um, and indeed, the bigger question is, now that the Marines have succeeded in divorcing the Blue Water Navy in terms of aviation requirements, does carrier aviation in the traditional Blue Water sense have the critical mass needed to actually create a well-funded bespoke air vehicle so far? But you, you got to think this is one of the more risky parts of the program budget and in, in, in aviation moving forward. But again, just a fascinating report and very well done. Exceptionally well done. Sash, anything you want to add to this? Yeah, I mean, actually, I'd echo what Richard said. I, I, I was most, I mean, no, I was interested by a huge amount of your notes, but in particular, just how aggressively you think the U.S. Navy will phase out the F-18EF uh, pretty much before FAXX is available. And that seems to me to be an enormous gamble by the Navy, but you know, it's um, it's your it's, it's your tax dollars, so I hope that goes well. But I have one particular question to ask, which is, um, I, I love the. Uh, you know the design concept you have for the uh, the tail, which you know at, at some uh, at some stages gives directional control, and other stages seems to just give lift and even more reduced self. What do you think the weight penalty is for that? And are there any? How do you de-risk uh, a, um, a a design like that? Do you think? Yeah, I think you know the you know, the thing that would I would want to focus on is really kind of that hinging structure. Because there's a lot of load on that on the hinge that has to make that happen. Um, it's a, you know, a reasonably complex structure; it would be reasonably heavy. Um, so, you know, would that be heavier than just having a fixed tail? Obviously, it would. Um, you know, my 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 hope would be that you could do it um, on an airframe that's you know, it, it, you, you, when you're thinking about an airframe that's larger than say an F-35 or probably even an F-22, um, that you can you kind of distribute that weight over the the the, the the bulk of the airframe and it won't you won't pay that much of a penalty uh but you do raise a good point i mean that that will put some you know complex control structure uh on the tail of the plane now you have offsetting that from a weight and balance perspective you know, a multi-cycle engine probably two multi-cycle engines so um you can you know shift the engine positioning around to to, to offset that um, you know, kind of the next step, if we were actually a design shop, would be really start starting to do these trade studies. So kind of what we threw out there was more of a, you know, a truly just a high level concept. But um, that would be the first thing you jump into and look at and say, OK, you know, what 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 penalty would you have to pay to, to, to really do this? Um, and, you know, in today's world with the, with the lighter materials and composites and so on and so forth, you might be able to trade off some of the weight in the actual control surface for weight in the the actuator itself, so and so my 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 sense would be more optimistic that you could actually pull it off without a penalty that would be um, you know too much. 
Um, we are almost uh, out of time. I have to reserve uh, a couple of minutes uh, for Sash. Uh, if you're Vladimir Putin, you had a terrific week. Uh, your nuclear saber rattling uh, in the wake of Emmanuel Macron's suggestion uh, that troops may be necessary to be deployed uh, to Ukraine. And I think the French president deserves an enormous amount of credit for being thoughtful enough to say, look, we told ourselves we wouldn't send missiles. We told ourselves we wouldn't send fighters. We're sending fighters. We're sending missiles. We may have to consider this. Let's think it through. Uh, instead, um, you had Olaf Scholz say, you know, we're not going to escalate by sending uh, Taurus, uh, then went so far as to out uh, his allies uh, and and how they may be you know, occasion, essentially accused Britain and France of being escalatory. Um, Washington panicked because anytime it hears the word nuclear, uh, it, it starts to clutch its pearls. And now increasingly, Emmanuel Macron is the only person saying what everybody was saying in the beginning. Ukraine has to win and Putin has to lose. This is a very binary choice. And instead, people are talking about war fatigue, which I think is, is insulting. There are one group of people who have war fatigue. And they were the Ukrainians we've encouraged. They're fighting and dying. And now we're tiring of this. Um, what, what, what was the meaning of Olaf Scholz's decision? Um, and what does it mean for German support for Ukraine? Um, which, you know, I mean, you can look at all of this, right? The, the Germans accuse the French of not doing much. The French actually maintain they're doing a lot. It's just that they keep it very quiet. I think they deserve credit for that, by the way. Uh, I don't think you have to blab to the world exactly what you're doing or what your personnel in the country are doing. Uh, anyway, walk, walk us through this week and what's your sense on what all of this, this means? Because we were trying to present a unified front. And one thing Vladimir Putin knows, he will leak nuclear plans, which may be inaccurate, but they have the outcome. It's left him smug. And, and, you know, frankly, on the battlefield, he's advancing. As we learned on Friday, it may be until August before the United States gets attacked enough in order to help the Ukrainians, in which case I actually believe that's too late, right? There are going to be a lot more Avdivkas uh, between now and then. Anyway, walk us through. Yeah, it's look, it's not been an edifying week for uh, the causes of Europe, European unity, let alone European unity with, with Ukraine. Um and although the the highest profile bit of that has been this disagreement between uh, France and Germany, it's much more, uh, it, it's much broader uh, than that. Um, Germany, I mean, Germany is supplying really quite a lot of conventional uh, equipment now to um, uh, to Ukraine. I think the problem in terms of appearances is that they always appear to be behind the curve. They wait until things get really bad, and then they release another uh, weapon system. Whether that's, um, uh, you know, whether that was main battle tanks, Leopard twos, uh, or more artillery, or you know, combat air, or whatever. And, and Germany just appears, for political reasons, to be behind the curve. Uh, the paradox being that the most left-wing part of the German coalition is much more in favour of transferring uh, stuff to Ukraine than uh, than Olaf Scholz and his. Um, uh, social Democrats are. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very odd political system. France, I mean, I think France, you know, the monetary value of what France has been supplying to Ukraine has not been very high, but the quality of what they've been supplying has been incredibly high. If you are prepared, as France has been, to supply scalp cruise missiles, 
um, and without very much in the way of limitations on how they'll be used either, then huge kudos to France for that. Uh, and the fact that France and the UK have effectively, although very quietly, been supplying Scalp and its UK counterpart Storm Shadow and co if not funding, certainly supporting the integration of the two missiles onto Ukrainian aircraft and the targeting that goes with it. That's very, very impressive indeed. What Macron has got in his favour at the moment is actually uh, he's in the last couple of years of his presidency, not seeking re-election, so he can actually say what he wants. He's not terribly worried about uh, you know his, his own opinion polls. Um, and that's, that's rather a healthy position, I think, for him and for the Ukrainians for, uh, for him to be in. Um, but, yeah, you know, have we got six months? Probably not. I think there's going to have to be a major stepping up of the supply of just raw munitions, you know, bulk munitions, but also the quality of what is being supplied. And the comments that Putin made about nuclear weapons, and this was portrayed certainly in Europe as being an incredibly light hair trigger before he'd go nuclear, um, were, you know, has uh, thrown a lot of confusion. Uh, in Europe as well as in uh, Washington. I think we step back for a second um, and actually look at 12, 18, 24 months. The risk is that more European countries decide they need nuclear weapons. The non-proliferation treaty, I don't think, will survive the re-election of Donald Trump. And uh, I think that, you know, it, it simply doesn't make sense for the UK to be the only nation in Europe with nuclear weapons, that commits them to NATO and commits them effectively to uh, the causes of, of European independence. I think France is going to have to do, do more in its regard rather than keeping its nuclear deterrent out of things. But I think that Central European countries, Poland, possibly even Germany, are going to have to have their own nuclear weapons because we probably can't rely on the US anymore. Uh, and this makes you know, this is going to make for a very, very uncomfortable dynamic. I'm not sure Chancellor Schultz is going to be the person who will be able to make that call, uh, but his successor could well be. Um, I, I just have to give uh, credit to uh, Britain and France uh, for for not clutching their pearls and diving under the table uh, each time uh, nuclear uh, rhetoric is used, because every time you bow to it, every other person, adversary in the world who's trying to hide you know, trying to use nuclear intimidation and hide behind their nuclear shield as they try to push you off the stage as a uh, human rights activist uh, and chess master, uh, Gary uh, Kasparov, uh, chess champion, Gary Kasparov uh, always points out is, you know, you've got to be tough and tough minded about this. And really, we just keep deterring ourselves, uh, you know, every every time uh, f f folks say the word nuclear. Uh, 30 seconds, Richard Khan, uh, the, the Turkish uh, sixth generation fighter from a country that's never built a fifth generation fighter, uh, which just means that next year I'm going to unveil my seventh generation fighter uh, from uh, the Maradian works. Uh, anyway, uh, what does it what does it mean? What's the market for it? Where is it going to go? Yada, 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 yada. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, performance art or something. I mean, you know, it kind of reminds me of the, wow. Is this it going to be powered by Pop Rocks? Anyway, no, go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of the, the joke about the, the Tupel of 144 that came out back in the 70s, you know, Russia's SST. It's like, it will go every bit as fast as the Concorde if we can just get it inside a Concorde. You know, I mean, autocrats <laughs> love, love, love their Potemkin aircraft. That's just a thing. And so, you know, you take someone else's engines, someone else's mission equipment, Equipment packages, if indeed any mission equipment packages, and other 
people's systems come up with a, an airframe that boy looks highly familiar to all of us build it which you know yes people can build aerostructures this is fun uh, anyone can build aerostructures put it all together get it airborne say it's a new generation fighter okay that's somewhere between hilarious adorable and scary that someone would believe it so anyway there we are i'm sure erdogan is satisfied Techno-nationalism, techno-nationalism comes in many strange and weird forms, and this is one of them. Is the, you would put the Korean airplane in a different category? It took Korea 20 years to work on this, 30-something years if you count the T-50, and right. carefully cultivating Hanwha as somebody who could work with suppliers on engines and mission equipment packages. has a long road to go, but it's it took them decades and not only that they actually do have a coherent set of mission equipment right. systems on site and then perhaps most of all they're not calling it sixth gen they're very proud of having created a you know a, a very heavily modernized 4.5 generation right. plane and it's it's really good for korean needs and they'll probably get some if they do that sort of korean value for money export approach they'll probably get some customers it's the exact opposite as the approach taken by the turks Guys, thanks very much. That's all the time we have for uh, today. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, thank you to the audience uh, for spending your time with us. We appreciate it very much. We'll be back again tomorrow with uh, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners for a look ahead at the week. Uh, and a reminder to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cabas Ships, co-hosted by our own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. That's uh, sponsored by HII and GE Aerospace. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler, that's sponsored by GE Aerospace. Thanks very much again. Hope everybody has uh, a great remainder of the weekend. We'll see you again tomorrow. Until then, have a great day.